Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on your community radio station or Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting out of the top of the historic Havern building here at 4th and Broadway with protests right out the window at 106.5 FM and we live stream to the world at forwardradio.org. Uh, hey, why don't you take a second to go to forwardradio.org and become a part of this community radio station. Uh, this is radio for the people, by the people, and that means the people need to get involved in making media that matters here. Uh, we are light on guests on this week's program. For instance, we'd love to have you behind these microphones and joining us in the, the virtual studio. So uh, go to forwardradio.org, click participate, uh, and maybe you could get behind the microphones either uh, as a guest on a program like this or, or doing your own weekly show. Uh, we also need volunteers behind the scenes, and we also need your funds to stay on the air. We want to thank everybody who contributed recently during our Give for Good Louisville very successful day of giving where uh, Forward Radio was able to just exceed our goal of getting uh, $4,000 raised in one day, which is incredible. That keeps us on the air for over 200 days, and, and that's fantastic. So we rely entirely on your support. You won't hear any advertising on our station, and we don't have any big grants. We've just got folks like you chipping in a little every now and then to keep us on the air. And so uh, go to forwardradio.org and, and chip in a few dollars today to support your listening. Well, my name is Justin Mogg. Uh, joining me in the virtual studio for Truth to Power today is Hart Hagen. Uh, he is host of Let's Talk and The Climate Report, and I am host of Sustainability Now. So it's very likely we might start talking about climate change and sustainability today, um, just because of the nature of our, our interests. But the topic for today's program is a conversation about a book called Switch. Uh, this is actually a number one New York Times bestseller from way back in 2010. Uh, and it's a book uh, subtitled How to Change Things When Change is Hard. It's co-authored by uh, Chip Heath and Dan Heath. Uh, and I got turned on to this book by a fellow forward radio programmer, Patty Payette, who works at the University of Louisville along with me and has started a, a little reading circle on campus focused on this book. Um, if we're lucky, we might get some of the participants in that reading circle on a future program here to continue talking about the text. Uh, but Hart and I are going to talk about it today because um, it just seems like such an important time for change, right, Hart? And, and it, cer <laughs> right. it certainly seems like the change is not as easy as we'd like it to be. <laughs> so uh, what do you think uh, some, of the, some of the main things that uh, just need need changing right now that this this text might speak to well one of the main thing i always say on the climate report that you know we've never seen real democracy we we're taught we have all this democracy and all this freedom and the U u.s goes all around the world saving the world from itself and spreading freedom and spreading democracy do we have real democracy i mean look yeah. at what you know the difference between the public policy that we get and the public policy that the people would like to have. So across the board, there, you know, we have the form of democracy. We have the procedures and the processes that go along with democracy. Yeah. 
but do we have substantive democracy? Do we really get to vote on the things that matter to us? Arguably not. So we need change across the board in, in nearly everything you know, that public policy addresses, whether it's we want a lot less war, we want a lot more peace, we don't want all this surveillance, we do want uh, single-payer health care, almost all, you know, in some polls show that a bare majority of Republicans want single-payer health care, let alone, you know, something like 80, 90 percent of Democrats want single-payer health care. Is that what we get? Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the protests in the streets yeah. uh, are the, are, are, are people of color or, or white people or anybody treated the way you would want to be treated by the people that you elect and pay to do the will of the people, you know, are we getting what we want? And of course, you know, uh, the protests in the streets are about profound endemic, yeah. endemic, profound systemic changes that need to occur. Yeah, yeah. There's there's all these structural issues that are coming to the fore right now in the midst of the pandemic and the the backlash, the Black Lives Matter protests, um, and the backlash to the killing of Breonna Taylor and David McAtee, and um, nationally, you know, this is actually global protests now uh, for Black Lives Matter. Uh, it, it seems like a global reckoning, um, and so. So far in my in my I haven't read the whole book yet, but so far in my in my dive into this text uh, about switch, I'm almost w feeling like um, the change that this book is trying to motivate may not get us to those structural changes we really need, but it does consider change at every level. It considers how you might change your own individual behavior or organizational or societal behavior. And let's just lay out what the what the book is about. I mean, it, it brings together a bunch of different uh, research in psychology, sociology, um, other fields uh, that may seem uh, counterintuitive <laughs> to shed new light on how we can uh, sort of motivate and foster this kind of lasting change. And um, uh, uh, the pieces I've read so far basically lay it out that there's there's three main elements to consider when thinking about what motivates a person's behavior. And of course, societies and organizations are all just assemblages of individual behaviors, I guess. So uh, maybe that's where I haven't quite gotten to yet in terms of like getting more towards structural change, but, um, but we'll get there, I'm sure. Uh, but these three elements are the rider, the elephant on which that person is riding, and the path. And that we, we, we can't make change by just trying to change each one of those things. So l let's talk about what those three things are, basically. So the way they've conceptualized this is that people's behaviors are really motivated by um, sort of these deep subconscious emotional uh, considerations. Uh, and those are called the elephant, the really big thing that's hard to move, <laughs> hard to turn around, right? Uh, and yet, of course, we're also motivated by our rational thought, our mind, our uh, what we, the data we gather, the things we know. Like we know climate change is real, so we need to do something about it, right? Uh, but then we 
we encounter this elephant who really uh, likes to drive <laughs> or really, really likes that air conditioning, you know, uh, or really loves to eat meat and can't get away from these things that, you know, are just everywhere and are sold to us. Right. So the elephant, I think, is fed uh, to into incredible levels of obesity by the media, by advertising. Right. Uh, well, the rider tends to not get fed as much, but maybe a little bit exposed to in the news if it's good news. Right. <laughs> Or, or by science or other uh, ways they get information uh, that helps them with this rational part. But the other key thing uh, that drives uh, the direction that we're going in is the path. And, and the book hasn't, as far as I've read yet, hasn't really dived in too deep about the path. I think that's a later part of the text. Uh, but the path is how we set up you know, the world in which the elephant and the rider are in. If there's a clear path for the elephant uh, that's laid down for them, that's really going to inform them no matter what their emotions or their rational thinking are, are right? So so the, the key then in, in this text about switching behaviors is that we have to address all three of these things at the same time. And as someone who says that every single week on my program, we've got to address environmental, social, and economic concerns if we want to get to sustainability. I kind of love that conception because I'm very I'm very comfortable with that uh, reality. But it's not it's not the way we usually go about trying to make change happen, right, Hart? I mean, well, talk it, about the environmental, social, and, and economic changes. Talk about how those are related. And you know, you've obviously thought about this a lot. So, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's the been my main frustration with um, the environmental movement uh, and with the social justice movement um, and with economists. Uh, they all seem to think like they've got all the answers. It, you know, if we just if we just as some economists will say if we just had a rational economy where people behave rationally or more enlightened economists say, well, if we just put a price on carbon, for instance, surely uh, we would have a much better world. Meanwhile, you know, people involved in social justice say, well, if if we just valued all people, if black lives mattered for crying out loud, you know, uh, we would have such a better world if we stopped with the mass incarceration, if we just met people's basic needs and gave universal health care or universal basic income, um, this would solve so many ills in our in our world. Uh, meanwhile, environmentalists say, well, if we just if we just paid attention to how nature functions and and lived within the, the, the Earth's biocapacity, uh, if we just didn't overconsume resources, you know, all these environmental things, if we didn't uh, destroy species, if we didn't burn carbon, uh, surely we would we would have a much better world. And while each of those things are true, they would create a better world. We're never going to get to a sustainable world unless we try and find solutions that tackle all three at once, uh, because, because we're undoing the work of the one by by not focusing on the other. And this is terribly difficult for us as people to do. And it might very well directly tie into this whole rider and elephant question. I don't know. OK, so, Justin, you have a Ph.D. in sustainability. Yes. So there are no doubt things that you have learned in that path that have informed you and you think, wow, if people just knew this, 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 and this. So what are some of the things that people, if people only knew, and let me get you started. To me, 
it would be great if people really understood how power works. So you have all this concentrated mm -hmm. capital that really tends to drive our mm -hmm. government and so forth. So there's such a huge disconnect in American culture between rhetoric and reality. We're taught that there's three branches of government and you go to the polls to vote and it's not perfect. You know, these checks and balances and we're fighting for freedom all around the world. And you're, so, but what you're taught, you're not really taught that you have all this money behind the scenes that's really driving the show. Mm. Uh, and it has changed a lot even since when we were, when I was young. And uh, so anyway, but what are some of the things that, that you wish people knew? Because, you know, in our metaphor, the rider and the elephant and the path, they kind of minimize, they want you to be careful. The, the, don't let the rider overthink things, mm. but the rider has to be informed. The rider has to know what's what. So what do you want Americans to know that many of us don't know? Yeah, that's, that's good. That's <laughs> it's, Well, I think the reason we don't know how to do sustainability, Hart, is because of our educational system. I think that really is a key part of the problem, and it's one of the reasons why I think it's so important for people like me to work in higher education to try and reform it because what education tends to do is to break things down into discrete we call them academic silos right um in, in before you get to college or graduate school maybe you wouldn't think of them that way but it still works down down to the level of kindergarten and there there are great reasons to do education that way right especially early on um but as we get towards higher education and college and grad school that is i think where the main function should be integrating knowledge and we are terrible at doing yeah, that. Yeah. So we instead, we tell students to become really good specialists at something. Uh -huh. You have to pick a major and, and you probably should concentrate within that major even uh, on something very specific so that you become the expert on, you know, this type of snail or something like that, for an example. Right. And I'm not saying we don't need experts on particular types of snails, uh, but not everybody should be that uh, because then you've got a whole bunch of riders, <laughs> nobody working on the elephant, nobody figuring out a path and definitely nobody figuring out uh, what what a solution would work for the rider, the elephant and the path. Right. Um, so it's it's that failure to integrate all those different parts of knowledge to understand how systems work, which gets back to what you were just saying about how power works, which is power is a system, right? That influences everything in our society and how we function and what we're able to achieve. Um, but it's that, it's that failure to integrate and to think interdisciplinarily, uh, to, which has caused us to be, I think, in this state where even really well-educated people go through this life of incredible cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> like, um, so many people I know uh, in, in higher ed who are concerned about sustainability still operate as if, you know, there is no such thing as climate change. And they, they, 
their their goal is to accumulate wealth and uh, <laughs> and and you know they may say the right things uh, and in some sense they may even deeply believe it but the path is so wrong and maybe even the elephant hasn't been addressed we haven't come up with solutions for sustainability that make sense to the elephant right that are and the way I put it is sustainability has to be sort of fun and and, oh, and, and sexy absolutely. right it, it's got to right. be attractive if we really right. want people to adopt it we can't it's gotta be cool it's gotta be cool we can't just ask people yeah. to like sacrifice and suffer for <laughs> for our right. future right. <laughs> um i mean we rallied during world war ii as a nation we all suffered together to get through that war uh so i think some people still think that we can do that in order to tackle climate change uh i, I don't know i, I <laughs> may, right. maybe i i don't like right. to use uh, military and war analogies though when i'm thinking about a more sustainable future but that's all we have to draw i know Oh, I know. That's all we've ever done together is it's war. The, the only time we ever come together is when we want to attack some other people. Right. Um, so, oh my gosh. You know, I, I learned a really interesting fact, Hart, that uh, might, this may, a little fun sidebar. Mm-hmm. There are only three nations in the world that the United States has never put troops into at some point in our history. Boots on the ground. Do you know what those three nations are by any chance? Could you guess? No, I really can't. Fun game here on Truth to Power. I didn't know there were any. First of all, they're all very small. Yeah. (laughs) Two are really small. One is Bhutan, the Himalayan nation of Bhutan, which must not have any natural resources that we're interested in exploiting, right? Yeah, right. the other... they, they have no natural resources. <laughs> they're 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 not trying to do this pointy socialist crap. Right, right. And they're not trying to uh, to you know get off the dollar. Yeah, those are the three things. Yep. And Bhutan actually is the one nation that's tried to measure its progress not by GDP alone, but by gross national happiness. Right. Uh, so imagine that. Uh, so here's a country that really seems to get it, and we haven't gone in there and mucked it up yet with our yeah. military exploits. Mm-hmm. And the other two are just tiny uh, European nations: Andorra and Liechtenstein, like these little oh. tiny uh, you know kingdoms that don't mean anything to anybody. Again no natural resources so imagine that every single other country in the world has had u.s troops on it at some point we have it says we don't even know as americans how many military bases we have because some of them are secret but it's estimated the estimated number is something like 300 military bases around the world today and if That's you add defense. up all the That's other defense. nations' military yeah. bases, it's something like twenty. You know, <laughs> so this mm-hmm. Im- incredible right. imbalance. Yeah. Uh, but that you know, that's just a classic sidebar for truth to We're power. We're defending right ourselves. We we have to defend ourselves from all these uh, people who want our money. Oh my goodness! Um, we need all those golf courses and heated swimming pools for the officers. <laughs> right. So switch is about how we change this scenario. Um, and and how we make lasting change. Um, and it's for people who do not have a lot of power to begin with. So this is not a book about how you become a corporate tycoon and, and you're able to switch because you control all the wealth and power. Uh, but this is about, you know, how everyday people might be able to be more effective at changing the behaviors of those themselves and those around them. And so I think it's really, it's really helpful for us as we all know, we're, we're in 
involved in a world that isn't the right path, right? It's the path we know is really screwed up for us. It's taking us off the cliff, right? Whether it's financial collapse, whether it's pandemic, whether it's global climate change, this path is really screwed up. So uh, that's a harder one to fix, but we have to lay out a path for people, I think, that shows them a way forward towards a sustainable future uh, without these disasters, a, a future of more resilience. Uh, but we also need to address the rider and the elephant at the same time. So, so that's what we're talking about today here on Truce to Power. Let me just remind listeners that you're tuned into Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville, with me, Justin Mogg, and Hart Hagen, uh, your usual co-hosts here on Truth to Power. Uh, we're doing a little book club of the air. Perhaps we'll do some future shows on this text as well. It's from 2010. It's called Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard by Chip Heath and Dan. Heath. Uh, Hart, do you want to share the little, uh, the little bit of the book that talks about an experiment involving bad popcorn? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> the book starts off with uh, popcorn. And it's like, they're going to have an experiment and they're going to see under what circumstances do people eat more popcorn and under what circumstances do people eat less popcorn on the theory that maybe some of us could eat a little bit less, but what makes people eat more popcorn versus what right. so they, and this is not good popcorn. <laughs> they make the pop, they, they make popcorn really bad. They pop this popcorn and then they let it sit for five days. I mean, this is not, this is rubbery popcorn. Yep. And uh, so, so they, but they feed, give, they, they give moviegoers popcorn. Some of the popcorn is in relatively large container. Some of the <laughs> popcorn is in a relatively small container and they they do this with people all different kinds of movies all different locations and they find that there is one count them one variable that determines how much popcorn people eat <laughs> and it is whether they have a large or a small container of popcorn the people who had a large container of popcorn ate more and the people who had a small container of popcorn ate less. So what they decided is that, you know, here's a problem to solve. How can people eat less? And the, the, what they concluded was that it's not a people problem. It's not about shaming people. You should eat less popcorn. Right. Or, you know, <laughs> do you know what that's doing to your arteries? <laughs> like, Let's talk blood pressure. Let's take your blood pressure before and after. Uh, none of that. So, whether you have, so they figured that they have a situation problem not a people problem and there's no you know, your complicated solution it's just okay smaller container <laughs> of popcorn so you know uh, uh, meanwhile in the united states you can get like a 44 ounce 44 ounces of coke and probably get free refills you know i mean let's give people lots and lots and lots of coke and uh you know bigger servings i mean when i was a kid you had snickers bars that were yeah. regular size yeah, now yeah, yeah. huge and it's like uh, okay those things those hershey bars that are like 40 ounces they existed but it was a novelty now you go in walgreens and it's like <laughs> how many different flavors of the very large hershey bars do you could you possibly want i mean almonds and white chocolate with oreos mm -hmm. just you know, every conceivable kind of very large candy bar. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'll tell you, one of the most 
one of the biggest culture shocks for me after living abroad uh, in the Peace Corps uh, for three and a, three years and three months in, in Paraguay, one of the biggest shocks to me was coming back and seeing, A, the size, the uh, quantity of of products, um, but also just <laughs> just the, the grocery store shelves themselves. It was just an assault of of options that do not exist in most of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what does this do to us mentally when we're we're just faced with way too many options? Uh, and that's kind of the like classic American problem right now none of them seem to make us happy or (laughs) but they're all like screaming at us to to buy 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 uh and i guess that's part of what's screwed up about the path uh but it's also appealing to the elephant uh and and maybe even in some cases trying to use marketing to appeal to the rider too and be rational like this product is really low fat or something like that uh 10 lower fat than the others but this is kind of meaningless in reality uh but it's a marketing tool to appeal to the rider um and there's all kinds of examples like that uh maybe it's even about something like eco-friendliness of the product uh with dubious claims uh, about that that you can't really verify (laughs) Uh, well if you will okay so we're on forward radio and this is community you know listener supported radio uh people have no idea how how much our commercial you know our commercial airwaves it's like they're the public airwaves they're supposed to belong to the public yeah yeah. way back in the 30s when radio was a new thing it was decided that the people weren't going to control the public airwaves it was decided that commercial interests were going to control the public airwaves so they use all the the public airwaves for virtually free and it's designed it's just by the systemic name more buy cars, buy cars, buy cars, uh, you know, McDonald's, uh, just pushing product and pushing products and pushing products. So when we want to make change, we have this model that says there's the rider and there, there's the thinker. And then there's the elephant that has all the strength and emotion. And then there's the, there's the path. Well, there, each one of us as riders need to know that the systems that are designed to deliver us information are not giving us unbiased information. They're giving us, on the whole, they're giving us a lot of information that is that is that is suitable to the people that own the airwaves and is and is suitable to the people that sponsor what's on the airwaves. Uh, and so you have a lot of writers out there that if the writers could know the you know there's the nature of the information that's coming to us. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at how the you know. Uh, if Boeing advertises, is that because the average viewer is going to buy a plane mm. or, you know, the stuff like that? Or if a McDonald's advertises, yeah, maybe they have the right to advertise, but try, you know, if you're a, if you're, if you're CNN, MSNBC, you're, you're being, your ads are being paid for by Boeing or McDonald's, mm. then MSNBC and CNN is not going to be properly investigating. That's why you need to support local uh, public affairs, nonprofit radio, because even, I'm sorry to say, uh, even NPR has been captured by commercial interests. There's some good reporters, but it's, you know, it, there's a reason 
why they have those advertisements. There's a reason why Ronald Reagan uh, decided that we're going to advertise more on public yeah. radio and so forth. Yeah, I, I I can't recall which major global conglomerate it was, but maybe it was a banking one. But I, I get so troubled when I hear these underwriters on public radio for like ADM, Supermarkets of the World or something like that. And there was one time where I literally heard that underwriting announcement. And then the very next piece was a news story about that company. <laughs> and, you know, right. it wasn't entirely uncritical of the company, but I had to wonder, really, oh, yeah. really, are you free to say whatever you want? Or is this uh, all part of a, a larger agenda, <laughs> a corporate agenda? Uh, so, yes. Uh, thanks, Hart, for reminding listeners to support us here at forwardradio.org. Donate what you can to keep media free and independent, for sure. Uh, you know, another interesting part of this book that we're talking about today, Switch, uh, is advice for those people like me who are trying to be change agents. And I wrestle with this one a lot, um, that it's really important to that your advice to people be as simple and straightforward as possible. The more we overcomplicate it, no matter what the reality uh, is of the need to say in sustainability, we need to change so many things at once. Uh, but the more we try and complicate it, the more you face that problem I was talking about in the grocery store where there are just too many options and you become a deer in the headlights. So the story in this book is about um, public health folks who were trying to tackle some of the some of the chronic illnesses, uh, diabetes and, and things like that in West Virginia, our neighbors in West Virginia, which have some of the worst health metrics in the country. And of course, there's so many things one needs to do to improve health. Uh, but what they what they found was that uh, the most important thing they could do was change make a ch fundamental simple change in something that almost everybody consumed every single day. So instead of like trying to make everybody vegan tomorrow or something like that, which is going to be too hard, what they focused on their campaign on was simply trying to get people to buy one percent milk instead of the higher fat milks, and they were incredibly successful in being able to do that because it was such a simple and straightforward message. Uh, rather than saying, uh, hey, you need to eat better, here's 30 different things you need to watch out for. And so they contrast that sort of simple messaging about 1% milk as being a great solution for health versus something like the U.S. Department of Agriculture's food pyramid. Are you familiar with this food pyramid, Hart? Oh yeah, I was taught the I was taught the four food groups. It, it was a little bit before the food pyramid, but yeah, talk to me about the food pyramid. Oh my gosh, I wish that here's the limitations of the medium now here on radio. But for YouTube watchers, <laughs> there's a food pyramid which I'll put up on the screen, and I'm sure you'll be familiar with. You've seen this. Mypyramid.gov steps to a healthy up a little bit healthier you. Yes. Uh, okay. 
so the graphic of this food pyramid it has um it, you know it's in color there's there's these different bands uh and this triangular shape and then there's stairs and a healthier person like walking up these stairs but it it, it does not convey the meaning <laughs> of the the message and in any helpful way right. uh it's supposed to specify the types and quantities of food that make up a healthy diet but it's the perfect example of how not to change people's behaviors mm -hmm. um so start with the pyramid shape the pyramid signifies a hierarchy right yet no hierarchy is evident in the food pyramid the first version of it displayed rows of food one row on top of the next with grains at the bottom and oils at the top some people interpreted this arrangement to mean that oils were superior in the most important <laughs> food group right whoops All right. <laughs> the, re the revised version abandoned that construct for these vertical-ish strikes of color intend to eliminate any implied ranking what this yeah. means is that the pyramid structure itself has no meaning whatsoever mm -hmm. so it might as well be the food rhombus or the food rooster <laughs> <laughs> so the meaning is almost completely opaque what do those streaks mean and the only meaning can be gleaned uh, that can be gleaned quickly comes from the stick figure dashing up the side meaning uh, you should exercise yeah right <laughs> but the answers to more meaningful questions how much how often what kind aren't aren't as easy to infer and so there's all kinds of ambiguity uh, in this food pyramid and that's what makes it a useless tool for trying to actually change behavior uh and the thing the thing about it is though that that reminds me of is that there's there's many different points of intervention along the path to change right if we want, especially something big and complex like sustainability, you think about this sort of spectrum of like people who will never change <laughs> to, <laughs> to sort of uh, people who are just kind of comfortable where they are, maybe need more information, those kinds of people, to people who are like uh, more of the reluctant adopters. But, uh, you know, once something comes fashionable, they'll keep up with the Joneses. And then at the further Justin Mug. Right. And then the further end, you have. Have like the early adopters of the more sustainable approach and the more radical people who will go way out of their way to try and be more sustainable. And so th the challenge for, for a person like me who's working with a very diverse community of people, even just within the University of Louisville, you've got everything from like, you know, custodians with no education <laughs> to freshmen who are just coming in to, you know, presidents, all kinds of people with PhDs and all that, right? And I have to work with all of them and figure out messaging that works for all of them. And there, so there is no like silver bullet there. There's no one food pyramid or 1% milk campaign that really makes sense for everybody uh, because people are at different knowledge levels, but they're also in different places in life and different and points on that spectrum of willingness to change. And so I think a good, uh, a really functional uh, uh, campaign of trying to change this, these behaviors has to be has to be diverse it can't be one size fits all um but i know i fall down that trap of overcomplicating things um is this this happened to you hard <laughs> oh absolutely so so be thinking i want you to i know you can give an example of of a time when you have you know 
crafted a simple message. I have one that I haven't done yet, but it occurred to me when I was listening to this book. So, so they have this example of instead of talking about high fat, low fat, et cetera, they said, we want you to buy more 1% milk. And so mo more people ended up buying more low fat milk and there were measurable positive differences in health, uh, health stores. And so one thing I thought of, so I'm president of Wild Ones, which is a native plant society. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, so I've known for a while, and th this is, I've adopted the philosophy of Doug Tallamy, who has taught people which trees and plants are the best for caterpillars. And mm. there, there are reasons why caterpillars are an excellent indicator as to what you're doing for an entire ecosystem because they feed birds and, yeah. and they become butterflies and a lot of reasons why caterpillars are. So the, a lot of increasing numbers of people have you know, gotten this message through Doug Tallamy and some of them through me. Uh, but I, I still tend to be a little bit too abstract about it. Uh, I mean, but but I think I'll have a campaign on oaks. Oaks are number one. Number one, this oaks support more caterpillars than than if you rank them. Like the, right? over four hundred species of caterpillars are supported by native oaks. Yeah, and huh. then other ones in the top five include uh, plums and cherries are number two. Willows, native willows are number three, birch is number four, and maple is number five, so long as it's native. So there are increasing number of people who kind of, and every now and then somebody, will, I've, I've ranked the whole top 100 in Jefferson County. Wow. Uh, but oaks are an incredibly powerful species nationwide. Uh, at 84% of the counties, we now know this as of the last five years because of Dr. Tallamy's work, but 80, you know, they've, they've compiled all this data. Uh, and now we can know, type in your zip code and you can know county by county by county, what, are the, what can you plant that is the most helpful in your county for caterpillars, and that tends to support and just be great for you. So I'm just going to have an oaks campaign real soon. You know, uh, I mean, talk. I, I'm going to. You know, we we have this Facebook group, and it's like um, I'm just going to talk about oaks for a week or a yeah. month, something like that. Just really drive it home huh. that oaks are number one. And mark my word, people will get get that. They'll take in that information. Oh yeah, and then they'll be saying. Oh, oaks are good for pollinators. Well, you're on the right track, but it's not quite pollinators. <laughs> it's caterpillars. Some caterpillars become pollinators, but but most bees, you know, most pollination happens because of bees, even though butterflies and flies and wasps and, and beetles can also be pollinated. People can be pollinators, wind can be pollinators. But just for people to know oak is number one, they don't have to know, they don't all have to know why it's number one or exactly number one at what yeah but if they know oak is number one i like that yeah do they need to know which kind of oak does that matter it has to be a native a now, native yeah each one of these is a genus a yeah. genus is a group of species so it has to be a, there are italian oaks and german oaks i've, I've never consciously laid eyes on a non-native oak but maple is a different story you have Norway maples are bad ecologically. So Norway maple is non-native. It's invasive. It's bad. Huh. Uh, it's kind of hard to tell the difference. Yeah, what does it recently. look like? What does it look like? 
Uh, it, the leaf looks very much like a sugar maple. Okay. Um, it's kind of hard to describe. The, the best I can describe huh. a Norway maple is the leaves are kind of bunched together. Like 30 leaves will be bunched together I got you. like that. It casts heavy shade. That's one of the reasons it's invasive. It casts heavy shade. Oh. But So that's a non-native maple, but you need a sugar maple or a water maple, the, a native maple. And then, like I mentioned, willows being number three. So willow, not a weeping willow which is non-native, oh, yeah? but your, your native willows include prairie willow, uh, uh, Missouri willow, black willow, pussy willow. You have these native willows that, are, that rank very high. So it has to be a native species within, within the genus. Hmm. But uh, I've never encountered a non-native oak uh, knowingly. Maybe I will someday, but it's good that you don't have those. But, but see, an, an oak does... Uh, it's like some people are pushing ginkgos and I'm saying, no, I mean, if we have a ginkgo here, a ginkgo there, fine, whatever. But uh, oak will do everything a ginkgo do. Sugar maple will do and then some. Sugar maple will do everything a ginkgo will do and then some. Sycamores are good. So, but anyway, that, that's what came to mind as far as a simple right. message that. that's not too complicated. Yeah. It's simple. It's concise. Three word, three letters, oak. <laughs> oak. If you don't learn anything else, remember Oak. <laughs> Organic Association of Kentucky. Right, They're having their too, virtual conference coming. If there's no, I, I heard something on the B- okay. Yeah. I heard something on the BBC recently too about uh, a, a new study about uh, maples actually and uh, loss of uh, a lot of maple species are now mm-hmm. uh, highly threatened because of climate change, right? Did mm-hmm. you hear this news too? Heard something about yeah, that. Yeah, I wish I had the details in front of me, yeah. but um, pretty disturbing. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I mean, that's that's a great example of the, the keep it stupid, uh, keep it simple stupid principle, right? Uh, don't keep it <laughs> yeah. stupid, but keep it simple. Keep it stupid simple. Uh, it, when we're trying to do our messaging, and, and what we're talking about today here on Truth to Power is Switch, how to change things when change are hard. It's actually a number one New York Times bestseller from 2010 by Chip Heath and Dan Heath, uh, and uh, we're doing Doing a little book club of the air with me, Justin Mogg, and Hart Hagen here on Forward Everybody Radio. Everybody else is protesting. We're there. I, I know. I know. I was very uh, – it, it's hard to come in from the streets myself right. uh, and from the garden today. But uh, we're, we're having a conversation about this text uh, because we know that – so much change is needed right now, and it can be overwhelming when you're someone trying to encourage change within your own life or within other people's lives or within your organization or your church or whatever. It can be really hard to try and understand how to create change. And so uh, this book, in a, in a useful way, I think breaks down that process into some real key principles to keep in mind. And just, again, the the, the reminder for it, for listeners is that that you've got to address the path that we're on, the elephant that we're riding on, which is the emotional and subconscious uh, drivers, and then the the rational rider and and the data they get and the information they get. But uh, you you were going to ask about how I try and, and keep it simple too. Uh, so so let me address that point because it does come up a lot. I very often will um, speak about sustainability for like an hour to a group or a class, and I'll get the hand raised. You know, mm-hmm. okay, this is totally overwhelming. So what's the most important thing I should do? You know, <laughs> and recycle. I, yeah, he's oh my god. <laughs> 
<laughs> I really wrestle with that one because like, obviously, yeah, there's some, some key things that everybody should, be, should already be doing that are really easy. Like, of course, yeah. Recycling is like the gateway drug to sustainability, but so not going to save the world and not transformative. So I always try to answer that question by suggesting two things Maybe I got to narrow it down to one. <laughs> That's maybe what Switch the book would want me to do. Uh, but I always say, there's look, there's two things that you can change in your life that you can start working to change uh, in your life that will be truly transformative. Um, so changing from like sending it to a landfill to recycling, eh? I mean, the, they, eh. maybe that has some positive environmental benefit, but really, does it change your life at all? Not in the least, right? Uh, and, and doing something great, like putting solar panels on the roof of your house, like wonderful. If you can get off fossil fuels, that's a huge, huge step, right? But does it really change your life? I mean, do you think differently? Do you behave differently? Maybe not at all. <laughs> Hopefully, if you're producing your own power and you're paying attention to that, you're trying to live within your means a little more. But who knows? I mean, someone could just slap some solar panels on their roof and go on living a very unsustainable lifestyle, right? So, And it's a big investment, and you have to be a property owner to begin with. So this is not like some... Uh, don't get me started. Where do we get our lithium? Where do we get our coltan? Yeah. Where do we get our, how do we get our gold? Lots of toxic, you know, in the... the the coltan, uh, slave labor, lithium is from Brazil and Bolivia, and there's a direct connection between, you know, the, I mean, there's a direct connection between the U.S. orchestrated coup in Bolivia and the amount of uh, lithium they have. Wow. So there, the lithium that, from lithium makes lithium ion batteries, which are an important component of, uh, of, of energy storage and electric cars and anything you, when you go from an internal combustion engine to an electric uh, motor, you're going to have probably have lithium-ion batteries, and it might yeah. be the difference is not as much as you might think. Plus, can we talk about slave labor? Oh Darn. my gosh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so all these. But I digress. Uh, no, great. I mean, it's all these examples of why it's not easy and it, and it is complicated to talk about all these potential behavior changes and which one's the most important. But for me, the two most transformative things that will really change the way you think and live in the world are changing what you eat and changing how you get around. And those two things, I think, also have a really big planetary yeah. impact, right? right? right. Uh, but to me, it's most important about shaping our lifestyle and, and our own personal health. Uh, and, it's a, and they're both decisions we got to make, you know, at least three times a day. Yeah, exactly. um, um, so it's, it's, it's something we could step into at any moment. And we don't necessarily need any money or prior knowledge, although planning for, for these changes makes it easier and makes it something something you can sustain in your own life. But hey, you could tomorrow decide uh, I'm going to have a meatless Monday, right? I'm going to try to not eat meat today, or I'm going to try to eat only locally sourced, seasonally appropriate foods for the day. That one would be even harder, uh, but it's possible. Uh, or I'm going to... Plus, it's so healthy. So healthy. It's so healthy. Or Fresh, yep, local, yep. seasonal foods. Yeah. Or I'm what's the alternative? The alternative is to get something that's from way far <laughs> right, away. Right, right, right. Processed, packaged, preservatives. 
or I'm going to try and eat something uh, or, or a whole day going eating nothing that was produced by industrial agriculture with all of the chemical inputs and fertilizers. Um, or maybe let's say, okay, industrial agriculture, but organic without the chemical fertilizer, something like that. Uh, and, and, and if you, if you explicitly make the goal of trying to create those changes, then you have to start looking at what you would normally consume without even thinking about it, right? Whether it's the meat or the organic or the local, like all of these different things that we can start analyzing in our daily choices about food. And we suddenly realize, well, gee, this means I, I just can't eat fast food anymore because it is so highly unsustainable and there are no good choices there. So, uh, or it now, maybe it would... Justin, is that a sacrifice or does that make you happier? Oh, see, I think, I, I think both of these things, changing what we eat and changing what, how we get around. And when I say how we get around, I don't mean changing from a gas powered to an electric vehicle. Right. I mean, getting around without a private car. Uh, there's many different solutions for doing it. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and we, here's where we get a lot towards, we got to fix the path, right? We got to appeal, uh, not just to the elephant and the rider, but we have to have a path that, that works for people. So when you have a city that's built entirely for cars and there's no safe or pleasant ways to get there on a bicycle or on a bus or walking, right? Or if we have a really sprawling city like we have in Louisville, it's very difficult no matter what we tell the elephant and no matter what we tell the rider to convince people to give up their cars. But man, if you freeze your keys in a block of ice for a week, <laughs> <laughs> this is a great challenge. Don't do it at like the worst way weather time of year and don't do it without any planning but hey say i'm going to freeze my keys for a week that means if i really need my car for some particular reason i could break break that block of ice yeah, and, right. but it won't be like i'll just grab my keys and go and do my normal thing right I, I actually have to think about is this trip worth it or is this trip something i can do in a trip chain or do some other part of the day or can i get there without a car and maybe i'll actually have more fun doing it it might take a little longer uh i might have to go a different route. I might have to carpool with somebody and meet somebody new, or I might have to get on a bus with a bunch of people who don't share my race, you know, like, oh my goodness. Um, so <laughs> Heaven forbid. all of these things come up with, with the simple act of just not getting in your car every time you want to go somewhere. Uh, and, and it helps you see your environment in a whole new way, right? Um, so you suddenly realize how difficult it is to navigate this city without a car, how, how much this city was built for every, the assumption that everyone has a car. And maybe you suddenly have more sympathy for the 40% of households in West Louisville that don't have access to a car, right? Uh, and oh my God, that not only that, but their closest grocery store is way out in the suburbs. Right. <laughs> so uh, just forcing yourself to try and get around without a car is really transformative. And it may be a really difficult week for you, but you but might Justin, learn a whole I'm bunch of things. That can help. Uh, this gives you energy. This is not, Absolutely. It, might be, it might be a sacrifice, you have to rearrange, but it gives you energy. This is like... Energy and agency, Hart. Like yeah, that's, that's the best thing about it for me. When I think about how I can eat less meat, eat more locally, eat more stuff that I grew or I harvested. So I have the knowledge and the power to sustain myself because I can produce it. I know how to do it. I know what I would do if the grocery stores had no food on the shelves tomorrow, which, hey, oh. 
in a pandemic we actually saw can happen tomorrow, you know? Like, yeah. Right. Um, so that is such agency. That gives you such a feeling of power. And same thing with getting around for me on a bicycle, but I know everyone's got different ways they want to get around. But for me, it just feels like such incredible agency to have the ability to know I can get everywhere I need to go under my own power. And when I arrive, I will not feel road rage. I will feel road joy. There's yeah. nothing more joyful to me than rolling around on two wheels. I feel like a kid again every time I do it, right? Uh, and I'm going to feel energized, like you said. Uh, and that, that little bit of exercise that you get each time you do it, it so adds up. Yeah, it totally adds As opposed adds up. to the sedentary process of being in a car. You know? and, and I think these two things trying to eat a vegan diet and, and things that are fresh and locally appropriate and seasonally appropriate. Plus uh, the exercise I get with not using a car in Louisville, but always biking everywhere I need to go. I think that is one of the reasons why I come at this work with such a positive attitude. Um, people ask me this all the time. Like, you work in sustainability. It's so depressing. Like, <laughs> we, right. are, we are so clearly screwing this up in so many ways. Like, how do you sustain yourself in this work? I get that question a lot. And for me, I've never struggled with it because I just feel healthy, right? Like, right. That, that basic, like, health of the, of the body uh, is so, so important. Being exercising and eating well and then sleeping well because of those two things like make you so much more effective and happy in general but it also is gets back to that whole agency thing that 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 fact that I feel some control because I think most folks feel completely out of control like they, they they certainly feel like they have no way to control this climate change issue or social justice issues uh, but I also feel like pe people don't really understand what what would make them happy? Because they're pursuing all these things that if science has proven doesn't make us happy. Uh, well, yeah, I'm thinking of a couple of friends of ours that, you know, when they describe, the, well, two, two examples. One is Jackie Green, who talks about how, you know, it's fun to be on a bike and go from place to place. I've done that in the past and yeah. do some of that. Uh, you know, it's just and he, the way he described it made an yeah. impression on me that he has fun doing it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then Steve Bartlett, uh, he does do some biking for yep. transportation. Oh, yeah. And, and also, he does a fair amount of gardening. Yeah. He's, half of his job is uh, farm workers, and he does some gardening and working. And, you know, he, he, you, if you do enough for yourself in terms of transportation and food, gardening, and stuff like that, then you, you get some of that exercise that you know, most people have to go to the gym, you know, you pay the gym and <laughs> nothing wrong with that, but it's so compartmentalized. Yeah. And it would be great if we could, you know, have a lifestyles where our food preparation and our transportation give us some exercise and health in the process of our daily life. Yeah. Yeah. And that 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 how do we get to that place well that to me that has a lot to do with the path uh, i always keep coming back to like what is the world we've set up for ourselves and mm -hmm. and if the path is like full of billboards trying to sell us an unsustainable lifestyle that is not going to make us happy whether it's a you know a mcmansion in the suburbs or uh you know a high fat high sugar diet or or fast fashion right like all of these things that we're we're told every day, oh man, every time I happen to be exposed to some advertising like 
in the gym. <laughs> Speaking of the gym, that's one of the few places I see it. Um, I can't believe what I'm seeing. You know, every time oh, yeah. I'm, I'm like, really? It's it's all about trying to sell you cars. Yeah. Every now and then. <laughs> or I, fast I food. <laughs> yeah. All right. And, and so it, that that marketing that, you know, if the path is filled with these kinds of uh, billboards, uh, how can we ever expect but that's the free to market, motivate Justin. the elephant or the, or the rider? I'm sorry. That's the free market. It is. It is. And it's part of the problem. There's no, there's no money behind, uh, a more sustainable, less consumer intensive lifestyle. And so to me, that means we, we actually have to do structural change and figure out what's going to make people happy and sustained. And it's, it's a less capitalistic and more cooperative, socialist if you want to call it uh, a lifestyle which is the path that we need to start cultivating. So how, how do we make that happen what's the simple concise path oh, to yeah. that yeah i know i think it's about people power and so you know maybe that's a good note to end on here as we think about what's happening in our streets now over a hundred and what is it 120 days constant protests since uh since we first learned about Breonna Taylor, uh, and and it's re it's really showing us the power of collective action, even in some cases fairly disorganized, maybe at the beginning. But as you're saying, like we're learning a lot as activists about how to do this well, how how to be more effective change agents in the streets, even. Uh, and uh, maybe maybe they didn't read this book switch, but th I, I see that people are being better about motivating the elephant and the rider uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in seeking social change, like speaking from a very emotional level, like just the basic level of imagine uh, you're the mother of, of someone shot by the police, no matter what your color is, right? Like that's going to be so impactful. Uh, so that's such an emotional, that really speaks to the elephant. Yeah, say her name speaks so, to the elephant. Exactly. Exactly. Like these are people too. Right. And that's, that's so important, but we're not just doing that. I think people, People are also speaking to the rational elephant with messages like defund the police, y'all. Like, what is this insanity of spending, putting all this money into policing to protect property? Meanwhile, people all around our city and our nation are suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I, I like that I'm seeing both of those issues being addressed. And to me, that's that means that these lessons from this book switch are actually translating to some activism today, but it's a long road and it's not, it's not easy to switch. Like the book says, how to change things when change is hard. And it, it, there are a lot of entrenched interests that want to keep things the way they are because it's profitable for a few. Uh, and, and, and it's scary for a lot of people. Uh, change is, is scary for a lot of people. They don't know what they might have to give up. Uh, and some will certainly, you know, be willing to come down to these protests to counter protest with their weapons because they're so afraid uh, of possibly losing whatever scrap of <laughs> power they, they feel they hold as a or privilege they hold as a white person in America. Um, but I've never seen it that way. I, I don't I don't feel like it's a zero sum game. In fact, I feel like uh, racism is horrible for white people in America. Oh, it is. It's, it is. Absolutely. 
Well, th that might be a pretty good note to end on. We're, we're running out of time here on Truth to Power. Uh, you've been listening to a, an intimate book club with me, <laughs> uh, uh, Justin Mogg and Hart Hagen. Uh, he's host of The Climate Report and Let's Talk at 7 p.m. every day on this radio station. Anything you want to plug coming up on The Climate Report? Well, I want to hear what's uh, new on sustainability now. I would love to tell you, Hart. We are going to launch a new series of interviews. I'm going to do at least three, maybe more, with uh, returned Peace Corps volunteers like myself. Uh, we're going to start out in the 60s uh, talking to some, and these are all Kentucky returned Peace Corps volunteers, uh, talking to some folks who served in, I believe, 1964 in Liberia. Uh, and then we'll move on up to uh, the present day. I'm going to interview some folks who were evacuated from their Peace Corps service in Madagascar because of COVID-19 just earlier this year. So you're going to hear stories about uh, life abroad and how meaningful and impactful it was for the, for the volunteers, but also the people they served, uh, and how we try and bring back uh, the work of the Peace Corps when we return to the United States uh, and continue that work in, in service to make a better world. So uh, it's a good time to tune in to Sustainability Now coming up here on Forward Radio. Thanks for joining me tonight, Hart. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Justin. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. Lots of great stuff coming up on Forward Radio, and Truth to Power will be back in your ears in one week's time. Stay well.